with one voice, I want us to gird the loins of our minds. Um, yeah, it's weird. Uh, and so I like this not because it's just fun to say um, and to mind picture, uh, but it actually paints a better picture of what's going on. Because when we just hear preparing our minds, it can be something that's simply mental or invisible or even ignorable, something that seems easy, much like when a professor says, prepare for a test that we already know all the answers to or we don't really care about. We just don't do anything. We show up the next day. It doesn't change our life. But here we see two things. We see a command to gird or prepare our minds. We see a command to be sober-minded. And we see this because of the hope of salvation that comes when Jesus comes back one day. You see, one day we will live in a new world, a world free from this pain and this suffering, a life where we get to live with Jesus forever and ever. You see, the the gospel, salvation in Jesus, doesn't just mean that we don't go to hell. It means we inherit something better. We get a life where all the things that hurt us, all the things that pain us, all the things that harm ourselves and those around us, they go away and we live in God's perfect creation. And what Peter is saying, he's saying the hope of that day, when Jesus comes back to restore all things and make all things new, that changes how we live now. And that's why we're looking at this book, 1 Peter, with the theme of this next life, because there, even here at college, there needs to be an intersection between what we know about the next life and how we live in this life. And the phrase, girding your loins, is something that men did back in Greco-Roman days when this was written. And for those of you who don't know, men wore dresses or togas um, or really big, baggy Lawrence of Arabia pants. And what they would do is when they're about to uh, do manual labor or they're about to, to fight or they're about to run is they would get their dress and they would make like a giant diaper out of it uh, and, and gird it up in their loins so that they would be unencumbered to go move. It was like the first boxer brief for men. And so they're free to to stretch and to run and to fight and to go. It was this literal physical preparation so they could do something different. It prepared them for something more. And while none of us have dresses, we turn into pants when we're about to go to class. We all have specific ways that we do this in our life. We all see some sort of future hope or idea, and that begins to shape the way we live. This weekend is opening day, or opening rifle season for hunting in Montana. Johnny was showing me really weird things that he has already prepared for this weekend. There are already men in the woods in Montana, soaked in deer urine, staring at empty fields, hoping to find the spot where they're going to go kill their deer. There's this preparation that comes from this hope. Uh, I'm currently remodeling a house And uh, when we initially started this project, I was really excited. And my uncle's a contractor. And we went to him and we started talking like, this is what we want to do. And so he started saying, well, these are the things you could do. And these are the things that I could do. And so we we had this split, like things that Tyler's capable of doing, things that someone who knows what they're doing is capable of doing. And so I got excited. This was back in May. I started going to Lowe's and Home Depot uh, more frequently and looking at power tools and having like the, the Tim the Toolman Taylor like as I'm like looking at all these things. Um, I started watching DIY YouTube videos. I started buying work gloves and safety goggles and feeling genuinely, generally more masculine about myself. So I was prepared I would plan out my day. When I go to the house, this is what I would want to do. And I'd envision me doing, you know, just going in. And I'm like, move that bus to my whole house. And in a day, it's fixed. Um, And I went in there. And as I started to do things, I realized that I am not a construction worker. 
I'm not a plumber, I'm not an electrician, I'm not an HVAC specialist, and all these things needed to be repaired. And a lot of these things are things that I said, yeah, I could probably do. And so I prepared in advance, I was mentally ready for it, but despite my readiness and despite my preparation, I found I was really unable to do what I thought I could do. And that's why when Peter's calling us here to look at the hope of heaven, the hope of Jesus coming back, the hope of eternal salvation and glory, he's also telling us that we need to be prepared in action, but we also need to be sober in our mind. We also need to be reasonable about what that looks like. How reasonable are your expectations for life on this side of death? And does it match up with what the Bible tells us this life should be like? And tonight, Peter's going to tell us what our life should look like. He's going to tell us what we should, how we should hope, how we should prepare, and what we should think in light of Jesus' coming return. And what we're going to see tonight is this. Christian hope is defined by an external calling and an internal transformation. An external calling and an internal transformation. And tonight, we're going to look at this in terms of two things. We're going to look at the call to holiness, and we're going to look at our conformity to holiness. So the call to holiness and our conformity holiness. Let's pray quickly. Lord, we are grateful for your work in salvation. Lord, we pray um, for us and our salvation here at the University of Montana, Lord, that you would work um, in this room a salvation which provides a hope that changes our lives outside this room, where it becomes pervasive, that in here we may have clarity of the gospel, that we might have wisdom of our salvation, that we might see in new ways that we've never seen before the implications of our salvation in our life so that it changes the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, and the things that we do. And Lord, we pray that this happens because when we truly understand the gospel, these things must happen. So Lord, I pray tonight as we look at what life in the shadow of hope looks like, that we become anxious but uncomfortable by the burden of what stands before us. Lord, I pray that this gospel may shape us in ways which we could only imagine. That six months from now, that 12 months from now, that 12 years from now, the people in this room will have lives radically different than today, not because they're older, smarter, wiser, or wealthier, but because they have a better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray for that to happen, Lord, and we submit ourselves to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, the first thing we're going to look at today, um, if you have the ESV, it's actually the heading of this section. It's called The Call to Be Holy. The Call to Be Holy. So, read with me uh, in your Bibles, on your phones, or on the screen, uh, verses 14 through 17 of 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing throughout the time, or con conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So first thing here is we need to find what does holiness mean? In your own brain right now, think what does holiness mean? It's a word, if you're around church frequently, you've often heard of. Um, it's a word that in our own minds can conjure up pictures of saints and halos and something completely unattainable unless you're like a grandma. Grandmas are holy, everyone else is not. It seems like this, this stoic religious thing. But what does it mean? 
Is it something unattainable for anyone who chooses to live not in a monastery? What holiness means is simply to be set apart. Words that would help us understand holiness are words like different, distinct, pure. And as the Bible talks about us becoming holy or becoming set apart, it uses another word, a word called sanctification. It means to be, to be uh, being made sanctified, which isn't ultimately helpful because it's the same word used in a definition. It means to be even more set apart. It means to be made sacred, to be made something special. And here we see Peter calling us in really clear language. He actually uses in this text, we're not going to go into all four, he uses four illusions, four motivations for us to be holy. Four times it's repeated in different ways. He's saying, be holy. And I find this really shocking. Not because... Holiness is foreign. I mean, we all know at some point, there's this general morality that even culture says where we should resist sin, okay? Part of being holy is being set apart for something good. There are bad things that we shouldn't do, and there are good things we should do. Even the most atheistic person out there says that there are morals that we should follow. And so it's not shocking that God calls us to a set standard of morality. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to live like Christ. But what is shocking is the priority that Peter puts on holiness here. Because did you see what happened in verse 13? He says, uh, preparing your minds, being sober-minded because of the hope that is to be yours and the grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter has just given us the whole scope of God's gospel. The salvation that will be yours. Why are we saved? Are you saved so that today you will have just no problems in your life and you'll be happy and perky? I don't know. That might happen. We might, be, we might rejoice today because we know the gospel of Jesus, but we're saved not because we know tomorrow will be better. We're saved because we know we have a problem of death and Jesus fixes that. And here, Peter's pointing to that. There will be a day when that death is finally behind you and you live in perfect relationship with God forever. He's putting on the forefront this gigantic hope of Christianity. People are saved because we're trapped, we're dead, and we need a Savior to save us eternally. And so he starts with this, because of this hope. And we all have a hope in Christianity, don't we? You see, whether you are a Christian you probably have this picture of what you think your Christian life should look like, what you want to do. Even if you're not a Christian, you might be considering what you think Christianity or religion can bring you. We have these fantastic ideas, ideas which are good, ideas like we will, because we have hope, we'll bring hope to the hopeless. Because of this hope, we'll provide aid to the widows and orphans. Because of this hope, we'll have monumental mountaintop worship experiences. Because of this hope, we'll go to Africa with the gospel. Because of this hope, we'll dig wells for those who need it. Because of this hope, we'll share the gospel with those who have never heard it. And we have all of these great, good, wonderful ideas of what the gospel should produce in us. These fantastic stories of what Christianity looks like. But here Peter grabs that hope. He says, ordinary, mundane obedience is the task of that hope. All those things are good. All those things are great. All those things have a place. But if you don't have obedience and holiness, your hope is lessened. And we're going to unpack what that means today. 
But I just want you to think right now, when you think of these two things, obedience and holiness, what priority does that have in your life? When you assess your walk with God, when you assess the reason for life, when you assess morality, how conscious are you of obedience to Jesus and being made holy or set apart? How often do you compare yourself to that standard? How different is my life because of what Jesus has done? And we often don't think about those things because we put external kind of observable things above and beyond it. But here Peter calls us to be holy for two reasons. First, he says we need to be holy because it's who God is. God is holy. We should be holy. Wouldn't we expect God's people to look like God? I mean, we all expect uh, children to begin to model the attitudes and the attributes of their parents at some point. And here he, he quotes Leviticus 11.44 where God says to his people Israel, he says, be holy as I am holy. It's a command. Be holy. Why? Because God is holy. And you're God's people. And this is the external call. God is saying, be holy, be different, be distinct, be set apart, be unique. To use Missoulian language, be weird, be strange. Keep Missoula weird. God wants to keep his Christians holy. You see, bosses get to tell us when we're to show up. Presidents get to tell us when we need to pay taxes. And the creator God of the universe gets to tell us how we are to live because he created us. And God's standard for his people is holiness. That's what he wants. He wants holy, perfect people. And God will only take with him holy and perfect people. And the second reason, so one is that God is holy. The second reason that he calls us to be holy, we see in 2 Peter 1.17. Don't you pay attention to what he's saying here. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So here Peter talks about your prayer life. We've all probably prayed before, whether we're praying with sincerity before God or whether we're, we forgot there's a test today and we throw up a dear Jesus, I don't know what to do prayer. We've prayed. But you see the reality that Peter's saying happens in your prayer. In those moments, you're appealing to God. You're appealing to him for strength, for wisdom, for comfort, for peace, for help, for whatever it is. But who you're praying to is the Father, God the Father, but who you're also praying to is God the judge. And you see, it's exactly because God is the good father that he's also able to clearly judge what is right and what's wrong. Just as a good dad is able to lead his children through the process of right and wrong, it's because God knows what's best and God knows what is good that we can trust him as our father. You see, holiness is important because God commands it from us, but holiness is also important because it's how we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged based on our distinction from sin, based on our distinction from fallen humanity. But for those of you who are Christians in here, and myself included, I've had these thoughts. But Jesus died for our sins, right? Jesus died for our sin. Why does my life need to look different? Why do I need to be set apart? I mean, we know there are certain sins we shouldn't do, but if we have this 50-50 like chemistry, stoichiometry equation, and more than 50% of our things are good, and less than 50% of our things are bad, that's still good. As long as we stay on this side of 50%, that's all we need to do. But I want us to look at two passages here, two passages that actually are written to Christians, and I want us to look and to, with sober minds, which is what Peter's calling for, assess how we view obedience. 
The first is 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. It says this, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, so he's contrasting those that are good and those that are poor, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test which sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. When I read this passage, I had to like triple check that I was reading the Bible here because these are things we don't consider. Here, what Peter is saying is that there is a day when judgment will be passed. He says, this day will come. And that's the same day that Peter's talking about, or this is Paul we just read, but Peter in 1 Peter says, there's a day coming when Jesus will be revealed. That's the day of judgment. As then when Jesus brings us into that new heavens and new earth, when Jesus judges us to see if we are worthy of that. And on that day, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that there will be people who, though they are saved, they will have suffered loss because they built with trash. They had the foundation of Christ, but instead of building with gold and silver and precious stones, they threw together enough wood, straw, and hay to cross the line and make it into heaven. You see, obedience is something, obedience and holiness is something we labor for because it brings us joy now. The Bible says that taste and see that the Lord is good. It says obedience brings us joy, but it also brings us something in the future. God cares about obedience because those who obey and those who have a better relationship with God will have a greater reward in heaven. In fact, when you think about your ability to resist sin, your ability to, to live distinctly, it's actually the basis of that which, where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. The second passage I want us to see is that who will actually judge us? John 5, Jesus himself says this, the father judges no one, but is given all judgment to the son. And so this is actually where we can get into issues of salvation and issues of works because God judges us not based on our works. God judges us based on the declaration of Jesus. Jesus looks at us and Jesus is the one who says, I died for this person and this person is covered by my blood. And God accepts Jesus' testimony. But here Jesus himself is saying that I will judge you. That I will judge your works. I'll judge your fruit. And we are not saved by our works and we are not saved by our fruit. But for those who confess that Jesus is God, do not think that Jesus is unconcerned with the way in which you live, with the passions of your heart, with the things you do in your quiet time, with your obedience, both the commands to restrain from doing things and the commands Jesus gives us to do things. You see, Jesus looks for fruit in our lives and that's not legalistic because we all do that. If all Sarah did was tell me that she loved me, but never kissed me, never hugged me, never cared for me, never supported me, does she really love me? And if all we do is say that we love Jesus, and to say we confess whatever it is that Christians should confess, and Jesus looks at that, do you think Jesus is going to be fooled? 
Because Jesus, in looking at your works, he's looking at your heart. He's looking at your ability to, to be different as God has called us to. And so here we see two external calls to holiness. God's, judge, or God's desire to be holy and Jesus' judgment of those. And the problem is, is that we fail on each of these. So if you're wondering, this seems harsh and this seems unattainable, that's good because it is. We are not perfect. None of us will ever pass Jesus' eye test on our own. And even more than just failing, what's often worse is that Christians neglect holiness altogether or else they attempt to pursue holiness on their own power. This brings two problems. Or this brings one problem, I guess, and two illustrations. One is if we neglect holiness, we have this thought of, I don't need to change. I'm okay. I'm all right. But when we do that, we fail to realize the true reality of our hearts. I was reading this story today um, of the, the, in 1961, trials began to try the Nazi war criminals from World War II. Um, and in it, uh, uh, a guy named Yehiel Denur, who was a Jew, who suffered in concentration camps. He went to go testify against Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of much suffering and injustice and murder and horrible things during World War II. And this journalist was, was watching these events, and as Denur went into the courtroom and Eichmann was marched in before, Denur was to testify against him. But when he saw Eichmann, he, he began to vomit, <laughs> to cry, and he just passed out. And they were trying to decide, you know, why is this? Is it, is it fear? Is it because here's this man who inflicted so much grief on him that the sight of him caused him to just collapse. But when they asked Denur, this is what he said. He said, when I saw him, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. If there's any two people who seem on polar opposite ends of the spectrum, it's a Jew who suffered the Holocaust and the Nazi who architected. And yet here he looks at this man and he says, that could be me. You see, if we neglect holiness, we miss the reality that this illustration shows. We miss that our hearts, we are broken, that we need to be different, that we have a problem. A problem put well in this simple poem I read that says, All the water in the world, however hard it tried, could never sink a ship unless it got inside. All the evil in the world, the wickedness and sin, could never sink the soul's craft unless it got inside. See, the problem is, is that when we stand and we observe all the evil in the world, we cannot fail to realize that all that evil is also in us. That sin has sunk our own souls. And we know that by looking at the stage of humanity and not being so arrogant or so foolish as to think we're different than it. And we know it also when we look inside, we know the deepest, darkest, most shameful thoughts of our own hearts. This is why we need something more. This is why external calls to holiness, though true, though offered by a just and pure God, are not enough. Because you can't earn your holiness. You cannot work hard enough to pass Jesus' eye test. We need more than an external call. We need an internal transformation. We need to be conformed to something different. We need to be made new. 
And this is our second point tonight. The confirmation to holiness. Where one is an external call, one is an internal transformation. Look back at 1 Peter 1.14. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So here he's calling us obedient children. And he's making this allusion to a parent and a child. He says, before you were God's child, you were in ignorance. But now because you are God's child, you don't have to be ignorant anymore. And being a father of two kids under the age of five, uh, I know the ignorance of children well. And uh, my children were so ignorant that up until a week ago, they didn't know what Pez candy was. They had no framework with which to understand these majestic head-turning, pill-popping candies. And my son was playing with a package and, and some Pez fell on the ground. And my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Adley, she ran over and she grabbed a Pez. I said, Adley, do not eat that. Do not put that in her... And she just pops in her mouth and chews with her mouth open, staring at me. And so what I did is I, I took her and I spanked her. It's like, why? Why would I spank a one-and-a-half-year-old girl from seeing candy on the ground and eating it? I knew it wasn't going to hurt her. She knew that it tasted sweet because she just ate it. But why is it that I felt the need to go and spank her because of this? You see, it's from a father's perspective, though. I knew that this attitude had to change. Because if Adley saw any pill-shaped object on the ground and thought that it would be safe to eat, what would happen if we were at our great-grandmother's house? She found a bottle of prescription pills that were spilled, one that fell behind the couch. What would happen if we were in the garage and she found some pesticide tablets? You see, I spanked her because I didn't want her to form habits that would lead her to her death. You see, I called her to obey because I loved her. And I didn't want her to live in ignorance. You see, the way in which we break, when you think about your sinful habits right now, you think about the things that take you, that you have this holy set apart thing, and then you have this pit of the rest of humanity, the things that put a smack dab in the middle of that pit and keep us from that holiness. The way in which we break those habits of sin is through the relationship we have with the good father. You see, far more than commanding us to obey him, though he could have been just, just to give us that command, God goes through the process of changing us so that we can obey him. Look at the language in verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. How does the call to holiness become sustainable? How does it become more than just girding your loins only to find out you can't fix the house? How do the commands you've heard at church or you hear stereotyped in the media where Christianity is just this obligations and these rules, how do those commands become life-giving and reasonable only because of the cross of Jesus Christ? You see, Peter says that we are ransomed from our sins. That means that one, at one point we were enslaved, we were stuck, we were trapped, we were uh, dead in our sin, 
and we needed to be redeemed from it. And see, when it comes down to it, we could hear commands to live differently day after day after day after day. You could download an app on your phone that I'll create, and it'll be Tyler's preaching at you holiness every morning, and we can make that app. Alan can make it, okay? Alan's going to make a Tyler alarm clock, and it's just going to say, be holy as Jesus is holy. And you could put that alarm clock on your mantle. Mantle? What am I, 80? You could put that alarm clock thing on whatever college students have by their bed and your mini fridge, and it could yell at you every morning. You could say every minute of every day, be holy as Jesus is holy. But if all you remain is trapped in your own sin and separated from God the Father, you have no ability nor any desire to pursue actual holiness because you're trapped. Look at what Psalm 49 says about our hearts. Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8 says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The Bible rhymed for one second there. Um, So here we see we're enslaved. Ransom is something you pay for the release of something. Who can ransom you from your ignorance? No one. Why? Because there's not enough gold, there's not enough silver to put a value on a human life. You can't do it. You cannot save yourself. You cannot ransom yourself. You cannot outwork yourself. You cannot outpray yourself to get out of the rut of sin and death and decay. But look at what it says, seven verses later in verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, which is the grave, for God will receive me. How does this happen? Here's this offer of us being trapped, us being enslaved, us being on trial at Newmanburg for all the war crimes we've committed against others and all that we've committed against God by denying him worship in our life. It changes in Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus says this, even as the son of man came not to be served, and to, or, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus did more than call us to holiness. Jesus did more than place an obligation on our shoulders that we know deep down we should meet. This obligation that we know we all should be better people. But Jesus came and he freed us and he purchased us and he empowered you to actually be different because he's covered you with the blood of the only innocent, pure person. The only person who never committed any crimes was tried as a war criminal for those who have done the worst. The only person who never deserved to die died for those who deserve death and far more. You see, the value of Jesus' sacrifice shapes the life we live in light of our hope. And Peter here is pointing to the value of Christ. He's saying that shapes your obedience. You see, unless you see the value of Jesus on the cross, your life will never be different. I'm living in my parents' basement right now. Um, It's like a running joke in my life. And my mom has in this cabinet, she has some of my grandma's fine china. I always wonder when this passing on of china will stop because I have no interest in having it ever in my house. And I don't understand it. And so I actually looked the other day because I see this china. I see that, um, that, uh, that, 
I'm the first kid who got married. My sister's dating Jojo, um, so they're obviously not going to get the China. And my brother's weird, so he's probably never going to get married. So it's obviously going to fall to me as the firstborn, as my inheritance. And so I'm like, why do I need to have this China in my life? And so I, I Googled, I punched into the Google machine, why is China valuable? And this article came up, and it said this. The difference between fine China and dinnerware, subsearch, what is dinnerware? Um, it's the difference between fine china and dinnerware is that fine china is formal and dinnerware is casual. While fine china may be used casually and dinnerware may be used formally, their purposes are segregated. This segregation is due to the additional expense of china, the cost to replace if broken, the rarity of the pieces, the artistic value, and sentimentality as fine china is often given as gifts. For example, as a wedding present from a gift registry or department store. Why is china different than dinnerware? Simply because it's valuable. Doesn't have much added utility. Doesn't eat your food for you. Doesn't make your food better. China is valuable because it's precious. China is treated differently because of its artistic value and beauty. To take China and give it to my daughter for her mac and cheese would be to desecrate it. It would take something which is set apart and sacred, set apart for something else, and to desacralize it, to desecrate it. And in the same way, when you think about your call to Christian living, and you think only in terms of a mundane existence which doesn't change, or on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of emotional journeys and fantastic voyages, yet you never think about the call to live differently and to live with holiness. You are desecrating the blood of Jesus Christ. How our hearts are guilty of taking the blood of Christ more valuable than gold and silver and casting it to the pigs of the earth. By accepting God's salvation, say, I don't need to be different, I'm saved. By accepting our salvation, meaning I'm already a good person. To live well, to read my Bible, to pray is all that's required of me. You see, Jesus died not only that we may be saved at his coming revelation, Jesus died so that while we are in exile, we may live fearfully and differently. You see, in college, you have demands for conformity in your life. Demands to live differently, to do specific things, to be a specific person. You have demands put on you to be shaped and molded by thousands of influences. And here's the thing, they only get louder. The moment you step out of college, there's more. The moment you get a career, there's more. The moment you get married, there's more. The moment you have kids, there's more. More and more demands are put on your life to justify and excuse the same old, same old, to put us in the same pit as the rest of humanity. But if you're not able to here in college to live distinctly, to live uniquely, to live set apart, to be holy, you will never know the true hope of Jesus Christ. And I say this because I'm not just concerned about your life here. I say this because I want you to have a greater palate for glory in heaven. The demands of the world are to be like everyone else, but the call of scripture is to be like Jesus. And there's greater freedom, there's greater identity, there's greater joy, and there's greater peace in the gospel and life change of Jesus Christ than there is from 10,000 parties, women, or activities the world can throw at us.
You see, we are saved by the grace of Jesus. But we're also saved by the grace-empowering life of Jesus. And Jesus' life matters. Verses 20 through 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. You see, we prepare our minds for the joy which comes when our salvation is revealed, but we live our lives out of the benefit made manifest for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't look forward without also looking backwards. You can't live a life of hope if you're not also looking back at Jesus' life, which was for your sake. This is like the fifth time in less than a page in our scripture where Peter has used the phrase, for your sake. This gospel is for your sake. This peace is for your sake. Jesus' obedience counted to you before God is for your sake. The fulfillment of Jesus' promises to be the salvation and the hope of those who are longing is for your sake. The promise to be the ransom for those trapped in their own sin, longing for something better, is for your sake. For your sake, Jesus became the ransom. For your sake, Jesus fulfilled the promise. For your sake, he is recorded in scripture. For your sake, Jesus has become the substance and object of your hope so that we can stop peddling with lies and trinkets the world gives us and we can finally sink our hands and our teeth into something which lasts and satisfies. For our sake. Jesus lived a holy life and died a sinner's death so that you might have both the power and the desire to kill sin and live differently. Do not neglect this salvation. Be holy for the God who saved us is holy. Be holy because we are no longer outsiders or aliens, but we are children of God. And this is where I want to encourage us if we live distinctly here at the University of Montana, we will have ample opportunities for people to see and hear the glory of Jesus Christ. We spent the first four weeks here focusing on evangelism and how we communicate different aspects of the gospel. And it's ominous, and it's terrifying, and it's hard. But can you imagine if just to start... 20 people in here lived a life saturated with God's holiness. Because here's the thing. It takes time and effort and practice to learn how to communicate the gospel well to your roommate. It does. It's awkward. It's hard. It's difficult. But Jesus has made us holy. Jesus has made us distinct. Jesus has made us new. Jesus has done these things for our sake. We can do this. We can grow in all of this. There are people on this campus who will hear and see the gospel of Jesus at work through the holiness of us. To resist sin is hard, but Jesus' power is greater. To be apathetic towards holiness is a real temptation, but the weight of the cross which demanded the blood of Christ for your righteousness is far heavier. And when we look at our lives, it's so easy to say, I'm stuck. I'm dry, I'm empty, I'm struggling, I'm drifting, 
but Jesus came for you. This gospel was made manifest for you. Jesus came to save his people because people matter to Jesus. I want to tell you that wherever you are, Jesus came for you. Jesus came so that you might have life here and you might have hope later, which changes our lives now. And I don't want to deceive you. I want to tell you and I want to bang on the Bible and say you have the power to be different because Jesus' power is greater than any temptation, greater than any trial, greater than any suffering, deeper than any rut we might be in. But I'm also here to tell you this is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. In fact, it says, do not be conformed to your former passions. The, the, the Greek word actually means to be pressed by a mold. We're, there are things pressing on us that do not want us to be like Christ. But I love the quote one British, British preacher uses where he says, I believe in getting into hot water. I think it keeps you clean. If we make ourselves hot with the task of pursuing holiness, we rejoice in that. Because in that hardship, in that strife, in that battle, in that sweat, we are reminded of the Jesus in whom we have faith. We are reminded at the drops of blood Jesus poured out to make us new. We are motivated by the promise of the hope that still stands for us. And what I want to typify us here at GCF as we look at the task of living Christianly on campus and sharing the gospel and being disciples and going to the nations, I want to leave us with the quote, a pastor named Robert Murray Machaney, who died when he was 32 years old, which means I've got a lot of stuff to do if I want to top him. And I love this quote. He wrote many books, one of the greatest preachers, but he said, the greatest thing I could give my people is my holiness. The greatest thing you can give to those around you is your holiness, because your holiness points to the Jesus who bought you, it points to the faith which saves you, and it points to the God who loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you do this in our midst. Lord, we are far too easily satisfied with Christian morality instead of Christ-like living. We are far too easily comforted by a salvation we gain through confession than we are at a life poured out in living praise for you. We are far too easily enslaved by sloth and by apathy. We are far too easy to lose sight of the gospel which saves us. We are far too easy to gird our loins and prepare our minds for the next date, for the next trip, for the next event, for the next graduation day, for the next job, for the next career, for the next high, for the next whatever it is. Oh, but God, I ask that you prepare us for the hope to come by preparing our minds for obedience which testifies to the love which saves us and the power which renews us. Lord, I pray that this happens because we need it. Lord, I pray that this happens because you've demanded it. I pray that this happens because as we live in it, it preaches the gospel. I pray that this happens because we care about our joy. I pray that this happens because we care about the lives of others. I pray that this happens because we value your word and your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you make us holy as you are holy because this world needs to see Jesus.
satisfy us with your steadfast love in the morning so that we might be glad and rejoice all the days of our lives. Amen.